Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to the French History Podcast. My name is Gary Chirot. Episode 29, Life in a Crumbling Empire. In our last two episodes, I talked about the high politics of Gallia and the Roman Empire. Today, we're going to look at daily life. The Gauls had been through a lot over the past two centuries. They were arguably the worst hit during the crisis of the third century as constant invasions led to near-total societal collapse by the 280s when Diocletian sent Maximian to pacify the region. Then the following 50-year period, spanning the rules of Maximian, Constantius, and his son Constantine, was incredibly transformative. This half-century brought stability to Gallia, but not prosperity, as the Roman Empire developed into the Late Roman Empire. The Late Roman Empire is an important concept among ancient historians as the character of the empire shifted from a classical system towards feudalism. At Rome's height during the reign of Antoninus Pius, Rome was the world's largest open society. A Roman citizen could travel from Britannia all the way to Syria, across northern Africa, and all along the Mediterranean in peace since Rome had hard borders that kept military threats far from civilian life. This hypothetical traveler would be able to visit enormous cities unrivaled by anything outside of China and India during their travels as the Roman central state poured money into building projects such as aqueducts and public baths, which spurred growth. While each province had their own regional language, vulgar Latin was employed across the empire and one could cross thousands of miles without having to learn a new language. The late Roman Empire was so different from the early Roman Empire that in some aspects it was almost a different country. First, troops were stationed inside cities, not the frontiers, meaning that the civilian and military spheres were in frequent contact. Moreover, soldiers acquired the right to requisition food, shelter, and day labor from civilians so their daily lives were subject to the demands of the army. In the best of circumstances, a civilian would be forced to carry a soldier's pack a few miles or house them for a day. But if a soldier were corrupt, they would go from civilian to civilian, demanding food and money at the point of a sword. Second, the borders were porous, as Rome largely abandoned the frontiers. Whenever large groups of migrants tried to cross certain landmarks, the army would rush to attack them, but smaller groups and individuals constantly moved from Germania into Gallia, bringing with them their culture, languages, and even their own political system. These barbarians diluted Gallia's Romanness, but by allowing them to settle within its borders, it gained a new host of conscripts to fight against invaders. Thus, 
Late Roman Gallia was culturally somewhere between classical Rome and Germania, with some areas such as Narbonensis on the southern coast looking much like it would have in the first century, while some areas in northeastern Gallia were populated by towns made up exclusively of Franks. Third, the late Roman Empire was gradually losing its linguistic cohesion. The city of Rome and Italy's importance took a massive hit during the Antonine Plague and subsequent chaos, while simultaneously migrating Germans and Goths settled along the frontiers. Meanwhile, the Greek-speaking East remained relatively prosperous, and when Constantine founded the new city of Constantinople on the Bosporus, it rapidly eclipsed the declining Rome. Finally, our theoretical traveler would have one more obstacle since travel was legally restricted. Diocletian and then Constantine passed a number of laws tying poor agriculturalists to the land. Meanwhile, there was a 2-5% to tax on exports between provinces, which meant that fewer merchants moved across the empire. These developments combined with a new political system that removed Rome as the center of the empire and established political capitals in various regions. The end result was that the different provinces of the empire were far more insular, as Roman citizens and their goods were increasingly trapped within their own regions. This insularity led to increased cultural and linguistic differentiation. Even though strong emperors like Constantine could keep the empire united as one political unit, culturally, Rome was fragmenting. That's the broad overview of developments in late Roman Gallia. The rest of this episode will look at daily life for the 80% or more of the population which were either rural agriculturalists or urban laborers. Most people before the Industrial Revolution worked in agriculture, and Gallia was no exception. The overwhelming majority of Gauls were small farmers. This had been the case even during the height of the villa system, but as the villa system declined, small farmers became even more important. These farmers raised animals, often cows and pigs, who provided manure for their crops. Farmers lived harvest to harvest and almost never planned for profit. Whatever small earnings they acquired were reinvested in new tools and seeds for the coming year. Moreover, whenever farmers did profit, it was almost always because tragedy struck somewhere else. If grain prices increased in one area, it was because grain was scarce, either due to raiding, fire, or a grain ship sinking en route to the market. Thus, capital accumulation was rare for individuals and usually a marker of disaster within a society. In this early period, virtually all labor was done by human and animal power. These people lived without complex machines, without many of the New World crops that have since become staples of the world diet like maize and potatoes, and without scientific agricultural techniques such as crop rotation. Most people could only hope to make it through the year and didn't imagine becoming wealthier than they had always been. An unexpected storm or a fire was devastating to a peasant family, though not nearly as bad as we might think, since peasants banded together to help when one of their townspeople were in need. The villa system described in previous episodes declined, but villas themselves actually grew in importance. Before, villas grew crops for sale on the Roman market, 
but in the 4th century they became insular worlds producing goods and raising troops for their own protection. The economically based villa system of the 2nd century became a militarily based system in the 4th. Large landholders rented land to tenant farmers who shared their profits with the landlord in exchange for protection from raiders. During Diocletian and Constantine's reigns, tenants were legally tied to the land. Even the children of tenant farmers were tied to the land, leading to a generation of serf-like labor. By the way, if I say serf-like or feudal-like, it's because many historians claim this was a precursor to serfdom and feudalism, though a growing minority claim it was its own unique system. To any of the historians listening, may I suggest dubbing this Feudal Light, a name which can double as a soft drink for peasants. From the Antonine Plague to the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, Gallia's population massively declined. The survivors often clustered together in small villages and towns, while a few major cities still remained. This population collapse meant that the landscape altered dramatically. With less people, forests grew again. Without central state funding for major building projects, many swamps weren't drained and marshlands grew across the country. More swamps and woods meant less crops were grown and people hunted and fished more. Moreover, these phenomena weren't restricted to Galia, but happened across the world, since the smallpox outbreak was a pandemic that affected most of Eurasia and Africa. The sheer amount of deaths across the Eastern Hemisphere meant that far fewer people were burning wood, and forests across the planet grew, absorbing CO2. While the early 300s were probably the hottest years in centuries, by the mid-300s, the global temperature nosedived a full 0.6 degrees Celsius. That might not sound like a lot, since it's an average temperature, but bear in mind that this varied by region and year. Since Europe is a northern continent, it was the most affected. Glaciers expanded, blizzards and harsh winters became more frequent, and this land, which was already cold by our modern standards, kept getting colder. Gallia was becoming a lot more wild. In fact, Gallia of the 4th century CE probably looked less like 2nd century Gallia and more like Gaul of the 4th century BCE. The major difference were the large Roman cities, which were less populous but still grand by contemporary standards. Some cities, such as Trier and what would become Bordeaux, actually grew during this period. While the countryside was de-Romanizing, the cities were bastions of Roman culture and values, most importantly, law. Cities were legal centers and people came to them for court proceedings if they couldn't resolve their problems where they lived in the country. Law courts were open to the public and could become spectacles if the case was controversial. Even though many poorer Romans didn't engage in high politics, they still gained a sense of Roman legal identity and rights from attending court cases, even if they only did so for entertainment purposes in what was essentially a classical version of law and order. Cities were also the information hubs of the empire, and public pronouncements and monuments for imperial conquests broadcasted the goings-on of the emperor. 
An important characteristic of the Roman city's unique layout is its lack of zoning laws. Most cities grew organically, and the result was that rich and poor lived side by side. While class issues still divided Gauls, these were assuaged by common problems such as dirt and disease, which affected all classes. Furthermore, while the rich lived in large townhouses and the middle class and poor lived in crowded apartments or shanties, they often visited the same public baths, temples, and markets. Most urban workers were free members of a middle class. They were skilled artisans and traders and could make a decent living selling their expertise to the wealthy. Beneath them were the unskilled day laborers who scratched out a living doing odd jobs. At the social bottom, but not necessarily the economic bottom, were the infamia, or infamous people. These included pimps, prostitutes, gladiators, innkeepers, charioteers, dancers, and actors who were called infamous because they made their living by displaying their body rather than through physical or mental labor. The infamia were barred access to civic offices and from marrying a non-infamous person. While infamous people were shunned by polite society, they were an important part of it. Female prostitution was legal and taxes were collected on it until the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Conversely, male prostitution was discouraged by the mid-3rd century and increasingly so as Rome Christianized. Romans believed that men needed to have sex and could do so through the use of prostitution, while women should remain chaste. During this period, adultery committed by a wife carried the death penalty. For men, it wasn't a crime. As Christianity became more popular, Christians discouraged men from cheating on their wives, but the law remained in place. Cities were important as hubs for trade, although this was in decline across the empire, and they were first and foremost havens against raiders. In the late empire, every major city had to have walls and a local garrison to protect against raiders. Since the large-scale disciplined armies capable of long-term sieges were rare, cities were the best defended locales in Gallia, and those who could afford to live in them did so for protection. Aside from its walls, the city's most important asset was its entertainment amenities. Compared to the modern age, the 4th century was shockingly bereft of amusement, particularly in the countryside where endless monotony was usually only interrupted by death. Cities had public baths, which had hot, medium, and cold water pools alongside oils patrons rubbed into their skin and grooming instruments for body hair. They also had workout facilities, which were patronized by the elites who otherwise wouldn't get the kind of exercise that hard labor gives. Baths were social places where people made business deals, talked politics, and met with friends. Baths also had mosaics and decorations to gods and emperors, effectively making them petty art galleries. Public baths lasted until the 5th century when Christians shut them down as places of homosexuality and sexual depravity. Thus, the clean Roman citizen gave way to the Dark Ages dirt-covered peasant that Monty Python endlessly skewered. The infamous Roman games kept arenas packed until the empire's end. 
The games were routinely attacked by some Christians as pagan, though as time passed, the games disconnected from their pagan roots and were cultural rather than religious festivals. Gladiator games were popular until the Empire's fall. Contrary to modern conceptions of gladiator games, gladiators didn't often die. This was because they were expensive and no slave master wanted to lose a valuable investment in one game. Instead, gladiators killed wild animals, although this was also expensive and fell out of fashion in the 5th century. Athletic, Greek-style competitions were common and less controversial than the violent gladiatorial games, but chariot racing was by far the most popular sport. These games were especially exciting because the carts were easily knocked over and there were no rules against physical contact. Charioteers routinely attacked each other and the races were incredibly dangerous, which only made it more exciting. Circuses supplemented the games with performative arts such as pantomime, wherein a single male told a story through dancing and gestures set to music, often using props and wigs to play other characters. Pantomimes often became celebrities and had their clubs connected with the clubs for charioteers. Mime plays were the comedic counterpart to the pantomime. Unlike modern, silent mimes, these mimes spoke and often performed a combination of scripted and unscripted raunchy comedy. Aside from the games and circuses, the cities offered morbid entertainment. In contested legal cases, a judge might order the torture of a defendant, which was done in public. Executions were also public and took place in arenas or theaters. Interestingly, in the coming centuries, Christians ended gladiatorial games and other supposed pagan or immoral rituals, but public violence and even execution of criminals remained. If the cities were entertaining, they were also dirty. The old sewer systems declined, aqueducts broke, and the people of Galia increasingly relied on wells, cisterns, and other still water, which wasn't as clean. Slaves owned by the city collected excrement for use as fertilizer in the surrounding countryside. What waste couldn't be reused was dumped just outside the city walls, out of immediate sight, but probably still within smelling distance. New constructions weren't truly new since the Romans recycled a lot of their materials. Glass and metal were constantly refashioned for new purposes. Slag, a byproduct of smelting and refining, was used in street construction. Decrepit old buildings were broken down and used to build new ones. The cities of the High Roman Empire suffered many of the same problems that the late Roman cities experienced, including dirtiness, disease, and odious smells, but the 4th century's crumbling infrastructure exaggerated all of the negative aspects of the city. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
One major difference between Western and Eastern Rome was that wealthy Eastern Romans generally lived in cities, while wealthy Westerners lived in villas, which became self-enclosed worlds with their own troops and large communities of laborers. Without a steady tax base to draw on, the cities of the West declined while the East continued to prosper. Meanwhile, those landlords living on villas grew insanely wealthy and dominated Gallic society. These nobles were usually the tax collectors, and they raised armies for the central state and exercised incredible control over the judiciary. They had all state power concentrated in their hands, and they used it to kill off the middle class, leaving Gallia with a handful of artisans while the overwhelming majority were poor peasants tied to the land in an early form of serfdom. To give you an idea of just how unequal this society was, bear in mind that by 400 CE, it's estimated that the average senatorial income was 120,000 solidi, just 1,000 for a court official, and 5 for a peasant. Also, less than a dozen clans owned most of the land of Italy and Gallia, while the majority of Gauls owned no land. While older historians have claimed that the fall of the Western Roman Empire led to a period of incredible inequality and forced agricultural labor, this transformation was already well underway during the late Roman Empire. Now, on to something a little more cheerful. Food. As the Romans conquered different territories, they took their Mediterranean diet with them, mixing it with local cuisines. Yet wherever they went, the four staples of every Roman's diet, regardless of social status, were olive oil, bread, pork, and wine. One major reason for this was that the state guaranteed these four food items to the army, Thus, they had to be grown and shipped across the empire, and many people produced them since the state was a guaranteed buyer. The Roman love of olive oil is well documented. Olives are perfectly suited to the Mediterranean environment, and their oil added flavor and calories to every meal. As trade declined, Gallia's olives increasingly came from the south in what we call La Provence, but what was then the region of Narbonensis. Bread has always been the main source of calories in Europe since the continent is too cold and dry to effectively grow rice, while potatoes and corn only came to Europe after the Columbian Exchange. Poor people ate dark, bran-heavy bread, while the rich ate white bread, which tasted better, though we now know is less nutritious. Romans ate all kinds of meat, including sheep, goat, pork, and beef, though not horses, since they were too valuable. All classes consumed all types of meat, and the Romans ate every single part of the animal, usually grinding the various parts into sausages or adding them to stews. Romans had to eat every part of an animal because they were valuable. Animals required lots of grazing land and care. Moreover, animals like goats and oxen were more valuable as work animals, while sheep's wool was more important than their meat. Finally, without refrigeration, meat had to be consumed within a short amount of time. For all of these reasons, Romans ate far less meat than modern peoples, though probably more than most peoples of their time. Rome's meat of choice was the pig. 
Pigs can live in virtually any climate, require relatively little care, and produce large amount of succulent, high-fat meat, making them perfect for the empire. The final staple of the Roman diet was wine. All Romans drank wine, usually a liter a day, though the wine was almost always mixed with water. Believe it or not, wine was often healthier than water back then, since the alcohol killed the harmful bacteria found in many water supplies. As I mentioned way back in episode 8, wine was originally an import from Greece, but it became enormously popular in Gallia, whose rich soil could grow an endless variety of grapes. Moreover, the Gauls developed their own wines and their own storing system. While Romans stored wine in clay pots, the Gauls kept them in wooden barrels, which absorbed the different wood flavors. We can't be sure, but it's possible that even back then, Gallia had the best-tasting wine in Europe. Unless you were poor, in which case you were getting the dregs. Literally. While the rich drank numerous different high-quality wines, poor people drank old wines that had soured and turned into vinegar. Now, let's talk about the family and romance. Since the earliest civilizations, households were economic units. Marriage brought two people together to pool resources while ostensibly producing children who cared for their parents in their old age. As more Gauls were tied to the land, the peasants married each other while free peoples married other free. Rome was a patriarchal society, and in order for a couple to get married, they needed the consent of each family's father. If a man married a woman without her father's permission, this was considered bride theft, since daughters weren't just considered to be sort of but not fully people by the Roman men, but also valuable assets to bring strong men into the family. Husbands could legally marry once they turned 14, roughly the age that they could work and provide for a family, while brides had to be at least 12, roughly the age that they could start bearing children. Once two people were engaged, the fiancé presented gifts to the bride's family, who reciprocated with a dowry. Marriage did not require a state ceremony, but parties were often held to celebrate the union. The husband and father had dictatorial power over his family, while the woman was expected to submit to his whims. Men were socially allowed to commit infidelity on their wives, especially with slaves, while a wife cheating garnered the death penalty. Women had between four to six live births, not counting stillborns and miscarriages. Initially, men could divorce their wives whenever they desired, but as Christianity dominated society in the late 4th to early 5th century, the laws changed, since Christians believed that marriage was a sacrament and divorce was an unnatural separation. Once Christians came into power, men could only divorce a woman if she were an adulteress, sorceress, or if she was unable to produce children. Meanwhile, women could only divorce a man if he were a murderer or a traitor. But things weren't all bad for women, just mostly. Women could inherit property if their husbands died, and since mortality was common, this happened quite frequently. Women who were 25 and had no father or husband were financially independent, though they could remarry if they so chose, and remarriage was also common during this period. 
Now, let's talk about children. They didn't last long. In the late Roman Empire, 35% of newborns didn't live past one month, while 50% of all children didn't live past age 10. But that half of all children that survived usually made it to adulthood. A quarter of all people lived to 50, while roughly 16% lived to the ripe old age of 60. Peasant children worked from a young age on the farm, artisan children apprenticed in the family trade, while rich children were educated in the home by slaves starting at age six. When they weren't working or learning, children liked to play. Girls played with dolls and house sets, while boys played with knuckle bones, marbles, and hoops, or with improvised toys like sticks, which could be used in rudimentary games or just to whack each other until someone cried. Just like in my youth. All children were under the authority of the pater familias, who we might call the patriarch, the oldest living male relative on the direct paternal line. Children became legal adults at 25. Otherwise, females became adults when they married, or males when they joined the army at 18. Boys received togas at 14 in a ceremony for manhood, though in Galia, manhood probably came later, as there is evidence that Gauls considered a male a man only when they became a father. In a society where death was so prevalent, it's understandable that so many people were obsessed with health and medicine. The Romans adopted the Hippocratic theory of health from the Greeks, which held that the body had four humors and that a person's health was tied to them. The Roman conquest of Gaul spread this belief, but the old Gallic belief that diseases were caused by evil spirits never died out. While these belief systems were opposed to each other, people often believed both and patronized Roman physicians and Gallic healers. Just as modern people go to their doctor while still using old family recipes, prayer, faith healing, or other spiritual methods of health care, Gauls bought Roman medicines while purchasing charms from pagan priests. Medicine was one area of life that allowed women to gain a measure of power and respect. As midwives, women were in charge of the all-important process of birth. Furthermore, women were often associated with the mystical and unknowable and could become wise women who developed herbal remedies to ward off disease. Finally, women could become physicians. At this time, there were no doctors, as we think of them, but physicians, who learned their craft from practical experience rather than formal education. Since there was no formal certification system, a physician was anyone who claimed to have knowledge of the body and possessed surgical tools. These physicians were allowed to practice within communities based on their reputation. But since physicians were pretty useless before modern medicine, even if most of their patients died, they were still probably allowed to practice in their communities. As you can guess, disease was rampant in these societies. Germ theory hadn't been postulated, and so even the tiniest wounds could become horribly infected since they weren't properly cleaned. Poor nutrition meant that people in this period had weaker immune systems. Moreover, more marshes meant more mosquitoes, which meant more malaria. Probably the only thing worse than the diseases were the cures. 
The first step in treating disease consisted of eating, or not eating, exercise, and bathing. If that didn't work, physicians prescribed medicines. If that didn't work, they used bloodletting, during which they cut a patient and drained them of much of their blood, supposedly to balance out their humors. When this didn't work, they resorted to surgery. Ancient surgeons were surprisingly adept and performed gallstone and cataract removal, though even successful surgeries led to new wounds, which could become infected, so if the disease didn't kill you, the physician would. During the late Roman Empire, rural life was healthier than city life as city waste went into the rivers and more waste meant more disease. Yet, malnutrition was common among the poor, and during famines, they went into the city. Finally, a note on the physically disabled. These people were often cast off from their family since they put too heavy a burden on most peasants. However, some wealthy people collected disabled slaves, especially the severely disabled, who were considered to be part monster or half-animals. Christians believed in taking care of the poor and increasingly founded care houses where people were fed, though these were largely run by lay people, not professionals. No discussion of the Roman world is complete without talking about slavery. As Kyle Harper notes, the Romans created one of, if not the largest pre-modern slave society in history, which spanned three continents, hundreds of years, and tens of millions of people. We'll never know how common slavery was, though estimates of the slave population range from 5% to 25% of the total population of the empire. Recently, Harper estimated that there were 5 million slaves, or 10% of the population. Whatever the figure is, slavery permeated society. But even though 1 out of 10 people or more were slaves, relatively few people owned slaves. Around 90% of the population lived at subsistence level, meaning that only the richest 10% of Romans could afford slaves. The thousands of senatorial-class Romans owned hundreds of slaves each, which they paraded through city streets to showcase their wealth and power. Equestrians possessed 6 to 20 slaves who took care of their mansions, while middle-class free Romans had 1 to 3 slaves, usually women, who cared for the house and were used for sexual purposes. Slaves were both a source of wealth and a sign of wealth, which made them doubly valuable to the Romans. Life as a slave was degrading, since their bodies belonged to their owners and they could be beaten, raped, or killed at will. Furthermore, slaves were often marked on the forehead or branded to keep them from running away. Yet, Roman slavery was markedly different from the chattel slavery of the early modern period. First, all races could be slaves, and it wasn't a person's skin color that determined their status, but their financial standing. Slaves were also regularly manumitted, either by their owners upon death, or when a slave was able to accumulate enough money to buy their own freedom. Slaves weren't just employed in agricultural labor, but held any occupation, including public office. The educated and skilled craft workers who were slaves could work with free people and earn a decent living.
I'm absolutely not trying to sanitize slavery, since slaves were frequently abused, denied all rights, and died younger than non-slaves. Interestingly, most Christians didn't oppose slavery, but poor treatment of slaves. Slavery was accepted in the Old Testament, and even the New Testament makes reference to slavery, so Roman Christians accepted slavery and even bought their own slaves, but promised to treat them more kindly than pagans and use their authority to convert them to Christianity. So, I've covered peasants, artisans, women, families, children, food, health, and slavery. That leaves one final topic, barbarians. By the early 4th century, many Germans legally lived within Gallia. The largest group were Franks, a conglomeration of tribes with a similar ethno-linguistic background from the land of Francia, literally, land of the Franks. Constantine settled numerous Frankish tribes within northeastern Gallia as long as they promised to stay within certain boundaries and keep out other tribes. However, pre-modern societies didn't have the capacity to monitor numerous individuals and could only control large groups. If an entire tribe of Franks moved from one part of Gallia to another, then the military would assemble and fight the Franks. But if an individual Frank traveled to a nearby city and took up a profession, there was very little the Romans could do about it since they didn't have anything resembling police forces or modern intelligence agencies. It was the same situation with the frontier. The hard border established by the Antonines was gone, and the porous border allowed for the frequent migration of small bands of people who settled and mixed with existing Frankish peoples or even with the Gauls. Despite Constantine's attempts to keep people apart, Franks and Gauls worked, traded, celebrated religious festivals, married each other, sued each other, and otherwise intermingled. Starting in the northeast and spreading southwestward, Gallia transformed into a hybrid society that is most reflected in the development of a new language. Near the end of the late Roman Empire, the northeastern Gauls and Franks began developing a common language that was a mixture of vulgar Latin, Gaulish, and Frankish, a language which would eventually become Old French. The grammatical structure of this new language was based on Latin. Latin was far more practical since it had a writing system unlike the Germanic languages, but many of the words and idioms came from the Franks. Thus, even though Gallia was under Roman political control, culturally and linguistically it was becoming more and more like Francia. Next time, I'll discuss the rise and role of Christianity within Gallia before we finally return to our broader narrative and follow Constantine's descendants as they try to rule this vast empire. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? 
I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.